0: Welcome back to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer.
1: And I'm Will Oremus. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, January 8th.
0: On today's show, we'll discuss startling new revelations about some of the major phone carriers. The story broke this week in Motherboard titled, I Gave a Bounty Hunter $300, and then he located our phone. It details how T-Mobile, Sprint, and AT&T are selling access to customers' location data to shady characters like landlords and collection agencies.
1: Lovely. And speaking of phones, could we finally be witnessing an end to the iPhone's dominance of the technology industry? Last week, Apple CEO Tim Cook warned about a shortfall in global iPhone revenue. We'll talk about why that is, what it might mean for Apple's future.
0: And if you work even remotely adjacent to the tech industry, then you know to your chagrin or delight that this week is the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, the mega, ultra, biggest in the world annual tech expo held in Las Vegas. We'll be joined by Dieter Bone, the executive director of The Verge, from the floor of the conference. We'll ask him about what's getting buzzed right now, the overall vibe of the year, following Cambridge Analytica and all these privacy snafus across the tech industry and if that robot can finally do a decent load of laundry
1: i love that laundry robot it seems to come back to ces every year and of course we'll end with don't close my tabs a couple of our favorite stories that we read online this week that's all coming up on if then lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli
2: i guess Uh aha in my dentist's office
0: And just before we start, I want to give a huge, sincere thanks to everybody that wrote us or left a voice memo uh, about their thoughts as the year closed, answering our questions. Um, If we didn't include you in our year-end episode, it doesn't mean we didn't hear your comment and enjoy it. We just had to pick a few. Uh, And yeah, thanks so much for listening and giving us feedback and
1: engaging with us.
0: Uh, It's really fun.
1: Yeah, it's great to hear from listeners.
0: And we're going to start the new year with Apple, not Facebook, which to me is a bit refreshing. Um, Happy New Year, Will. Uh, I guess this is our first show of the year that we're doing um, on the news.
1: You too, April. Yeah, it's good to be back.
0: Yeah. And so uh, Tim Cook opened the year uh, with a bit of a, a yellow light from Apple, a bit of a pause saying that, that things are not as great as they were last year and in previous years when everything was just always booming. Uh, and it had to do with the iPhone in particular, um, which has had some drama surrounding it over the past year. Uh, can you kind of sum up what the issue is? Tim Cook has just said that they're they're not making as much money from iPhones as they used to, right?
1: Yeah. So he he put out a memo to investors saying that Apple had to revise downward its estimates of sales and revenue, and the reason was largely because of a slump in iPhone sales in China, which is Apple's biggest growth market no longer a growth market, apparently, at least not in the past year. Um, And there was actually a 5% decline in revenue for the company uh, in the the last quarter of this year versus the year before. So it it seems like maybe the era of just steadily increasing iPhone sales is over. uh, and, And some people read this as maybe the beginning of the downslope for the iPhone, which has been, in many respects, the most successful consumer technology product of, I don't know, of the, the century, of, of all time, of of recent history.
0: Right. right. Well, I'm certainly uh, begrudgingly addicted to mine. Um, I don't know if it's made my life better or worse, but it's certainly a staple. Uh, and, you know, I think this is actually coming as smartphones in general are declining in sales, right? I mean, we saw a decline in sales this year and last year. Uh, you know, people are just keeping their phones longer. What's the deal?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's a lot going on here. Uh, and part of it is just the macroeconomic situation in yeah. China. Um, and, and that's part of what Tim Cook of Apple says they didn't anticipate was the, the degree, the magnitude of that overall slowdown in consumer spending in China. But it's more than just that. It's, it's also that when people are buying new smartphones, particularly in China, they're not buying iPhones. Um, mm. And there's a, there was a great analysis of this from, from Ben Thompson, who writes the Stratechery newsletter, which I recommend, and, and he says that the reason he thinks that's the case is in most of the rest of the world, iPhone users are incredibly loyal. When they get a new phone, they get a new iPhone, no questions asked. In China that's not the case. And and his theory is the reason is in most Apple markets, that iPhone software is actually what you do a lot of your daily computing on. You use iMessage to talk to your friends. You know, you text with your friends all day on Apple software. Well in China WeChat is actually the dominant platform for messaging and for a lot of other things. And so the iOS software is less crucial to the experience. And so you're really just buying a phone based on the hardware, because whatever phone you have, you're going to be spending a lot of your time in WeChat. And so the degree of customer loyalty in China to Apple and to the iPhone is not nearly what it is in other markets. That makes it susceptible when a new model comes out and people just aren't as excited about the new hardware that people might buy some other phone instead. And that is indeed what's happening, at least in China.
0: I mean, isn't it also that people are replacing their batteries instead of their phone a bit more after the kind of drama that surrounded the news? that uh, Apple was kind of intentionally degrading battery life
1: yeah so that was what people were trying to figure out in the wake of this announcement because Cook said look this is mostly China it's mostly the macro economy in China but Obviously, he's trying to reassure folks that this isn't a sign of of broader weakness in the iPhone. But there were hints in there, but it, that it's not just China. Um, he did mention the battery replacement program, Apple. it used to be incredibly hard to replace your battery. Which it was illegal a lot of people...
0: to open your phone, right? to and replace your battery. or it was breaking the kind of product agreement, wasn't it?
1: Right, And and iPhones used to be sold, I mean, for going back several years, they used to be sold under carrier agreements where the carrier would subsidize the price of the phone in exchange for a contract that locked you into that carrier and you couldn't change carriers or that sort of thing so so the environment is different today for iphones and some of the incentive to replace your phone every two years is gone and it turns out indeed people are not replacing their phones as often it might also partly be be just because like phones have gotten better you know i still had i just got actually a new iphone 10r but i had an iphone 6 before that not even the 6s so that was like I don't know, four years old, I think. Um, And so I'm I'm maybe an example of that trend where people just didn't feel the need to upgrade as quickly, especially now that the prices aren't subsidized and you're looking at a thousand bucks for a new device.
0: Well, I'm like a weirdo in the situation because I I have a new iPhone that came with a plan that I was supposed to get the new phone and I have a, a six that I'm still using. I'm not transferring to the eight that I actually have sitting in a box in my house because I am so offended by the fact that it forces me to not charge my phone and listen to headphones at the same time, which is something I do all the time in my workflow. And like I lose so many little cheap headphones. I have no desire to like have another little dongle. You know, maybe people don't want the new phones too. I don't know, but this is certainly something that we're going to keep watching because um, iPhones are and, and just smartphones in general is such a central part of our life. And I think it's important to reiterate that it's not just iPhone sales that are down, but people are not replacing their cell phones as much as they used to in general. And and there might just be just a saturation in the market too.
1: Yeah, it, partly market saturation, partly that the phones have gotten good enough that you don't have to replace them, so you can be like April and leave it sitting in the box <laughs> for a while. <laughs> I just should uh,
0: sell it on eBay. If anyone wants to buy my iPhone eight new, let me know.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's worth. I, I actually got a trade in value for my six, which I was surprised by. But, okay. but uh, the one other point I did want to make is that part of the problem here for <laughs> I'm Apple is that going to sell my phone on their... the show. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> listeners, please write in yeah, if you want to buy, buy my April's phone iPhone from eight. Yeah. <laughs> um, b- but part of it is that they're doing the right thing in some cases. You know, the, it's, it's not a bad thing that you can replace your battery on a phone now. It's not a, a bad thing that, the, that phones don't go obsolete as quickly as they used to. And, yeah, it might hurt their, their share prices, but it's not. I don't think it's an indictment of the company. Um, and, and you're right. There is, there is a broader issue with the smartphone sector. It's not just Apple, surely.
0: Well, beyond uh, buying phones, the phones that you have may not be treating you the way you would like to be treated, uh, and that's my bit of news. A story broke this week on Tuesday, uh, the day we're recording, actually, from Vice's motherboard from Joseph Cox, who writes about surveillance issues there and has for so long so well. Uh, It's entitled, I Gave a Bounty hunter $300, then he located our phone, and it is about the black market of real-time location tracking. So we're not talking about just, like, selling data that you generated and then, like, being able to get that data on the black market and then advertise can target you with it ostensibly later this is about selling real-time location information and uh and that Location information is coming from your phone carrier, right? So like AT&T and T-Mobile, and they are selling access to that or providing access to that to uh, to companies that then, you know, offer it to another company. And then all of a sudden that, you know, access ends up in the hands of a landlord or a real estate agent or a bail bondsman or a bounty hunter, or any, uh, you know, shady person that you might not want to know where you are exactly at any given moment. Uh, so a really wild story and uh, one to to really keep in mind when it comes to how these, you know, telecom companies, we're not talking about social media companies, but telecom companies are, are just disrespecting uh, their customers in such, you know, massive ways.
1: Yeah. And w- when we've been talking about privacy over the past year, so often we're talking about, Facebook and the, the information that they have on you based on your browsing history or stuff you've entered in your profile or stuff you've liked. But I really think that location data is potentially the most invasive uh, privacy concern and widespread privacy concern um, in modern technology. Your phone tracks you almost everywhere you go, unless you turn GPS off. And you know stalkers can use that um, to find you. Um, people could use it to, to threaten you or to harass you. People can figure out where you were at any given time of the day. I mean, it's just it's just a nightmare waiting to happen. And we're starting to see the examples like this of how it can be exploited and how it can fall into the wrong hands because, you know, as you said, you know, the carriers sell it to one company and then they sell it to another company and they sell it to another company. And sooner or later it gets to the point where you can buy it on the black market. And this device was from a company called, or the, sorry, this service was from a company called Microbuilt, and it's called mobile device verify. And it's supposed to be used, I guess, by like landlords to, to scope out potential renters or, people selling cars who or people conducting credit checks. Um, but I mean, even that's pretty shady. But then the fact that you can just like find somebody on the street to, to track somebody based on their phone is just it's just scary.
0: I know. And like so, you know, I, I've written before about um, how you can't clean up a data spill. Right. So like once the data is out there, uh, it can just be you know, replicated and and then sold again and again and again with just the press of a button, right? Like you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube uh, once there's a leak. But we're not talking about data that was already created. We're talking about actively create, like like we're talking about your active movements, right, being sold. And, and so this company, MicroBuilt, you uh, is getting its uh its data from a company called Zoomigo, according to the story that T-Mobile shares location data with. Uh, Zumigo is kind of a data aggregator, so some kind of under the hood company. Um, and then Microbilt shares data with its customers with a kind of a mobile phone tracking product that it has. Uh, in the case of the Motherbird story, uh, with a uh, bail bond company that that they had, um, you know connections to a source that was somehow linked to that and yeah and then and then according to the story that access is then sometimes you know found for sale on the black market so it's not just uh people who are working directly with the MicroBuilt, but then you know it seems like you can't even clean up uh access to data in this case or I you actually i would think that you can if these carriers decided to not be so porous right so this is a case where they're just like leaving the doors open and and not closing them and then selling the map to those open doors or the way to get to those open doors, you know, all over the place. Um, But this seems like this is something that carriers really could do better on. Uh, I mean, they could do better on all types of stuff uh, when it comes to privacy leaks, but this is just so horrendous.
1: Yeah. And they they have to do better. And and we've actually seen just in the past year, examples of pressure being brought to bear on the carrier's on this issue, the carriers, there were some reports earlier about how they were letting um, prison guards track inmates and that service could be exploited to track the phones of anybody in a similar way. And Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon was one of the ones leading the charge and calling for investigations. And the next thing you knew, the carrier said, you know what, we're not going to work with Securus anymore. We're not going to sell this type of data anymore. But that was just, it sounds like that might have been just the tip of the iceberg, at least only part of the story. And they're going to, we're going to keep finding out about different ways in which our location data has been compromised or is exploitable. And absolutely, I think the carriers have to be held responsible for it.
0: You know, and the the thing is, like, the harms of this are really, really hard to describe and to get people to care about. I mean, we do not have regulations that force these companies to do anything. So, you know, we have a case where uh, T-Mobile CEO says, you know, I've evaluated this issue personally uh, and pledged that T-Mobile will not sell customer location data to shady middlemen. Well, that's obviously not true because this story is about uh, <laughs> kind of T-Mobile uh, being one of the carriers in this that uh, that was investigated by Motherboard. And there's just no regulation here. But I, I on the harms, like... You know, I I have been hearing for years. Every time there's this type of data access, you know, it takes some time to come out. But we hear of abusive. It's typically abusive men um, stalking ex girlfriends or ex wives uh, in some way, right? Uh, and and you know, we see all sorts of um, practices or, or kinds of like w- ways of spying that uh, are manipulative, or, or perhaps data targeting that is manipulative, um, and. You know, it's, it's something that we haven't really studied the harms of enough. So let's just keep that in mind and, uh, and just be aware that whether it's Facebook or your phone company, uh, there is a real disrespect to consumers and there are not laws that force um, kind of consumer respect in the U.S. right now. So a really interesting situation that I think is going to um, continue to, to, to cause a lot of friction moving on into 2019.
1: Right, and since we're talking on this show a lot about the iPhone and about choices that Apple could make, one thing that I've argued Apple should do and and ideally uh, Google should do on Android um, is make it easier to turn off location tracking system-wide on your phone. They make it really hard to do. If you want to turn off the GPS, um, and I mean turn it off altogether, not just deny access to certain apps at certain times, you have to go through like five different Menus, And I do this all the time, actually, but it's a huge hassle. And if they care about privacy, I think they should give you, you know, one or two taps to turn off location services. And then you can only turn it on when you need it. That would would minimize the harm. All right. With that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Dieter Bohn, executive editor of The Verge from the floor of CES.
0: Our guest today is Dieter Bone. He is the executive editor for The Verge and is one of its founding editors. And he's joining us today from the Consumer Electronics Show, or I think it's just called CES now, the Global Tech Expo put on by the Consumer Technology Association in Las Vegas. Hi, Dieter. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on. This should be fun.
0: Yeah. So I want to start with just kind of zoom out themes and then we're going to whittle down into some some more precise questions. We've read some of your pieces today uh, that that you've written um, about CES. But but let's start with kind of what the major themes are of the show that people are anticipatory about or excited about or, or expect to kind of learn more about.
2: Yeah. So the, the big tech theme at CES every year is always televisions and uh, <laughs> or transportation well, or, or transportation. Yeah, <laughs> right. those are the two. Um, and transportation, I mean, just really quick, uh, doesn't seem to be making massive splashes that I've seen. There's there's some cool stuff. and We've got we've got some stuff coming. One of our uh, reporters drove a semi truck or rode in a self-driving semi truck, uh, which was the thing. That ah, happened. Um, yeah. okay. That's
0: cooler than anything I've done at CES. Yeah.
2: yeah OK, that um, wins. Yeah. But like TVs, the weird thing about TVs this year is uh, we're in a lull where all the TV companies aren't trying to convince you that your TV sucks anymore um, because they know that it's pretty good and they don't have a new thing like 3D or curved TVs or even 4K to push. They're all doing this really aspirational stuff of your TV is fine now. You can go buy a TV. It's great. But in the future, you're going to have something amazing like a TV that rolls up or a TV that you can just put on the wall like Legos. Uh, So you kind of don't feel so bad about the TV in your living room coming here like you
1: usually do when you come to CES. I don't know. Now I'm really jealous of the TV that you build out of Legos.
2: Yeah, that's. Uh, it's called The Wall. It's by Samsung. And the, the innovation there is instead of using LCD or OLED, they have this thing called microLED. So they're little tiny LED lights that they can fit really small. And then they come in these, I don't know, like foot-by-foot panels. And then they, they can fit close enough together so you don't see the seams between them. So you can just build a TV to the size that you actually want directly on your wall. Um, But it's wildly expensive. It's insanely difficult to actually manufacture. So although it is like technically real this year in a way that it wasn't last year, um, unless you're Mark Cuban, you're not going to go buy
1: one. Yeah, that sounds like the TV equivalent of one of those concept cars you see at an auto show that's never actually going to get built. I mean, nobody bought a modular smartphone. I can't imagine why they'd buy a modular TV there's
2: tech at CES that you're like, yeah, you made this thing, but I know you're never going to release it. I looked at some like health robots at Samsung demo. That's like not going to become a real product, but this thing could be real. The question is how long until it costs less than like $3,000 for a 60 inch TV. And my best guess there is like three to five years.
0: Does my only note on TVs, and I'm probably going to annoy a lot of our listeners for this, (laughs) but like, I don't have a nice TV at home, but I went to a friend's house over break who had a really, really nice TV. And I thought it was too nice. Like it was so <laughs> sharp and it felt like I was like it was like dizzyingly nice. And it just looked like I was watching some like security cam reality TV show footage or something. And it didn't it didn't have like the kind of distance or gloss that I'm used to with TV. So right. I don't know, maybe maybe uh, maybe TVs are too nice for some people. And, and you know, another kind of big thematic question. What is it like? being there this year. I mean, I went for the last two years. I'm not there this year. And my sense is that there are fewer journalists going this year. Uh, and it's not because sales of gizmos and gadgets are down. I think that they were up in general this holiday season. Um, but what's the what's the general like vibe of the, the room?
2: Uh, the vibe of the mini rooms of CES. Mini sorry. It, yeah, right. <laughs> it no, tells, I mean, it's, but, yeah. it's actually way quieter than I remember. And uh, just as an example, uh, before the actual main show floor at the convention center opens, there's all these little like banquet hall mini shows. They're called like CES Unveiled right. and, and whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and typically you have to get there like two hours early at least. And there's a line of like 100 journalists sitting on the floor and sweating and working on their laptops and already stinking up the joint. Um, but this year, like a half hour before the CES Unveiled event opened, there were maybe like 30 people in line. Um, so it's been super quiet. Now, the show floor opened today the day we're recording here. And so it is of course packed and crowded and there's lots of people. Um, But I think it's way fewer than last year. And I, there's conspiracy theories about why. So the CTA insists that there's 180,000 people in attendance, which is about the same as last year. Um, But you ask around on like Twitter or whatever, and people are like, well, we suspect that a bunch of Chinese companies aren't interested in coming into the U S in this moment, uh, which is a fascinating conspiracy theory that I would love somebody to confirm.
0: Just one reflection on last year. Do you guys remember when the lights went out? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if there's going to be any like epic drama moment. Nothing was like unveiled when the lights went out. They just went out. But I mean, this is like the biggest electronics, you know, consumer event. And and the electricity went out. I remember that last year.
2: Yeah, so we had all sorts of drama last year because the lights right. went out in part because there was a storm. There was It was raining in Las Vegas for like a week and no one ex- plans for that. Uh, least of all, Google, whose booth flooded and they couldn't open their big booth for their giant, like, what we're at CES and we're here and we mean it, reveal last year. Yeah, they were like, we're uh,
0: hardware <laughs> yeah. last year, yeah.
2: And, and so this year they, they decided to make up for it by tripling the size of their booth and creating a small world ride where you get in a little train and like go through like an animatronic. Like thing, it's oh completely God. bonkers. yeah
1: That's last not gonna fix slide. their PR
0: crisis. Yeah. Oh, they had a slide.
2: <laughs> they had a slide last year. Last slide, year. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah I, I want to get back to Google in a second. At, at first, just on the the topic of the power outage last year. Both April and I were there last year, and I was actually on a VR ride when the power oh, went right. out, no. and nobody noticed that the power had gone. Everybody's just like, "Why isn't the ride going anymore?" And it was, oh it was just a, a, a weird glimpse into a future where we're so wrapped up in our technology that we literally don't notice that the power is gone out <laughs> gonna, and there's an emergency around gonna us. Going to
0: put a kick me sign on the front of anybody wearing a <laughs> glasses
1: <laughs> but, but I was gonna say that that yeah it does feel like there's less excitement around it this year which is funny because last year one of the narratives was oh CES matters again you know Google's here in a big way and and you know there's always Samsung but the voice assistant wars were like reviving interest in CES and then this year all of a sudden it's like eh Nobody's going to CES. I don't know. I'm probably over extrapolating from a few people on Twitter. Like Joanna Stern, the longtime Wall Street Journal gadget writer, is not at mm-hmm. CES. When when Joanna Stern isn't at CES, that just feels that just feels weird to me.
2: Yeah, it it is super weird. There's a bunch of people that aren't here. And it, it's it's almost like there's um like when there's a like a a battle at CES when it's like there's a, a standards war like this version of uh, HDR versus that version of HDR this assistant right, versus Blu-ray that assistant and, yeah, yeah Blu-ray versus you know HD DVD like you can like really get into like the fight at CES but everybody here this year is like yeah our stuff works with other people's stuff um, and uh, I'll, I'll just tell you the biggest example of that the most surprising thing that happened at CES this year is every TV is. Get working with Apple stuff they're all getting airplay
1: it's surreal that's really weird so compatibility maybe is the theme I mean everybody's always looking oh, for the theme which is usually
0: interoperability that's it yeah, usually,
1: usually <laughs> it's sort of bogus but like I like that as a as a non weirdly non-dystopian theme for this year's <laughs> CES um, I did notice that that um, Samsung is still trying to make Bixby happen. That's its version of Alexa or the Google Assistant. And one of the things that it said this year was that it will eventually get um, Google services working through Bixby, I think. Uh, yeah. So that war is maybe less of a, I don't know, less of a war now.
2: Uh, I think it's less of a war. I think it's also uh, I think that uh, Samsung recognizes that it uh, it will never get Bixby up to the level where it can compete head to head with something like the Google Assistant or even Alexa, um, and so it needs to reposition Bixby as a thing that like controls Samsung stuff and like controls operations of the device that it's on, and less of a generalized assistant. Um, and other companies have done this too. So like the reason that like cortana and alexa work together is because microsoft's like we're never going to compete with that so we'll just let one talk to the other and vice versa i think that that's uh that's gonna be common for pretty much everybody except the the big two they're just gonna you know let something else work on on their stuff
1: yeah i almost wonder if apple needs to do that with siri it's just i mean it was a first mover in virtual assistants but it's just fallen so far behind in intelligence it's sort of general intelligence versus the google assistant and even alexa
2: yeah, if you had asked me that a week ago, I would have told you that you were absolutely crazy. That would never happen. Uh, but then this week, uh, we saw iTunes appear on Samsung TVs, uh, and then Bixby is able to index the content inside iTunes on Samsung TVs, and then every other TV manufacturer uh, is getting AirPlay and HomeKit control on their current, like, future TVs, and also even like going back a couple of years.
0: You know, with all of that, I mean, we've dealt with the year of kind of a public referendum on, on privacy amongst, you know, all the tech companies. Are you getting a sense that at CES they're trying to reconcile that in some way or, or is there a lot of conversation uh, I about privacy? Absolutely.
2: No, they, they are not. Uh, they Okay, they they're just, keeping it about
0: it, products and not about policy. They're keeping
2: it about products and, and in a way that is um, – obstinate and naive and infuriating like it Um, it
0: feels it feels ridiculous
2: (laughs) yeah like the the main ces keynote was done by lg this year and they got i forget his name they got some futurist on stage and he talked about this amazing vision where ai is going to listen to you 24 7 listen to everything that you say and everything that you do and that will make your life better because it will be able to respond with suggested things that you need because it's always listening and recording to everything you say and i'm just sitting there with my jaw on the floor like have you not paid attention to the news for the past six months? Have you not heard every conspiracy theory that Facebook is recording our conversations? Don't get in front of the biggest consumer electronics show on the planet and say stuff like that because nobody wants to hear that. You're nuts.
1: Yeah, that sounds like CES. It's just always been a <laughs> tone deaf show, right? But uh, but it is interesting that that it doesn't surprise me in a way that this is coming from the companies that are not... Facebook and Google because they haven't gone through that same reckoning yet, right? I mean, LG has not been the subject of intense public backlash. And so maybe they, you know, that message has yet to trickle down to all of the other companies that are still on the AI bandwagon and haven't really gotten on the the uh, protecting your privacy bandwagon.
2: I think it's coming for them, though. and We we did an interview with the CEO of Vizio, uh, which has had a, a rocky time, but they're, they're doing it right now. They're making TVs. And he basically straight up said, look, your TV would cost, you know, $300 more if we turned off tracking on your TV. Because every smart TV tracks everything that you watch, like, nonstop. Um, and that's what keeps the cost of them down. And TV companies are aware that GDPR and other privacy regulation is coming for them. And I think that You know, everyone's paying attention to regulation for Facebook, Google, a little bit of Amazon, maybe a little Microsoft. But it's going to trickle its way through the rest of the consumer electronics industry once people start waking up to realizing that, like, everything that they've got in their house is doing some kind of creepy tracking on them.
1: And so the issue of privacy is sort of metaphorically or symbolically hanging over CES, but also literally hanging over CES is this giant Apple billboard that says what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. I think maybe you described this as like a Apple trolling all of CES by <laughs> saying, yeah. "Look, we're the we're the privacy leader." You wrote a column that I thought was an interesting s- spin on that. It was called "The Moral Case for iMessage on Android." What is that case?
2: Well, the the case is basically if, if Apple really wants to say that privacy is a human right and Apple wants to position itself as a defender of privacy. One of the, uh, for its own customers, one of the biggest privacy holes that it has (laughs) is when people send text messages off to non iPhone users, uh, because it's, it's difficult to convince people to all standardize on a, a single secure messaging client. And so if you want to truly protect the privacy of your customers and everybody else, you should make iMessage available on Android. Now, uh, I have to. I had to start this column with like the list of six reasons that this will never happen, ranging from like <laughs> people don't think that Android can be secure enough to it will uh, be a catastrophe for Apple's bottom line because nobody would buy an iPhone if they can get iMessage on an Android phone. Like, go down the list. I know that's all true, but. I I don't want to say Tim Cook and Apple are being hypocritical uh about privacy, but it's like it's getting to the point where if Apple is going to talk about something like human rights, they're at the scale of a government entity that maybe has a responsibility to do more than just look to their bottom line. They should actually do something to back up that that privacy claim. Um it's not I don't I don't quite want to go that far, uh but I just sort of wanted to like hey You know, you say that you care about human rights. Well, the privacy is a human right. Maybe maybe you could do this to help make that happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a totally spot on analysis. And it's so interesting because we do have to remember that Apple is, I believe, the most powerful, according to Forbes, or most moneyed company in the world. Um, And so, you know, we do have programs like Signal and other end to end uh, cross platform messaging options. I would be curious what Apple exploring that would look like if they did so in earnest. I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, technical reasons that they wouldn't do it, but um but you're right that it is hard to hear them talk about human rights in one hand and then in the other hand have them like, you know, redundantly refuse to make the encryption on their phones inter or on iMessage interoperable or make iMessage, you know, available on other phones on Android.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think that the the question of is is Apple being hypocritical when it talks about privacy is going to come for them at some point in 2019 when people really start paying more attention to uh, the work that they're doing in China, that they have to keep some of the iCloud stuff on servers inside China. Uh, I think that's going to be a bigger story uh, sometime this year. Something's going to blow up there.
0: I want to end with the fantasy or the reality of 5G. Uh, That's something that I'm hearing talked about more. Of course, we've been hearing the notion of 5G discussed for years now. Uh, I have you know, big question marks surrounding it as somebody who's been following spectrum policy for, you know, 15 years. I, I'm not sure exactly what it is other than a marketing ploy, considering that, you know, we, ju- of course, we're going to make networks more robust to handle more devices. Um, are you hearing buzz around that? Or do you have thoughts about kind of the wave of 5G that's ostensibly been coming for five years now?
2: Uh my first thought is uh, that I completely agree with you that there is okay, I'm sorry no, no. There's, I gave there's like, a, there's like a, there's a so giant hard, but- wave of like, five G is here. <laughs> Somebody got on yeah. stage and said, if you think five G is going to wait till twenty twenty, you're wrong. It's happening now, and it's like, no, no, it's not. Nobody has it. Like, what is it? Nobody mean? knows even what it means. <laughs> like there, there's microcells and picocells and blah blah blah. It's like, like ship the stuff and then we'll see but you're not going to hit your claims about the data it's not going to be quite as revolutionary as you say Um, but there is this thirst to like keep trying to drive I don't know, some innovation, some profits, and some Internet of Things stuff with 5G. And so there's a bunch of buzzwords like all bundled up in there that everyone has sort of, as a collective delusion, agreed to pretend like they know what they're talking about. And mm-hmm. that's what 5G means, is let's pretend we know what's going to happen in the next year when it comes to wireless devices. Um, what's actually going to happen is still very unclear to me. And unless uh, that this rollout of this new cellular technology is... Happening way faster than I than I've seen thus far. I think a year from now we're still going to be like, well, now we know what it's going to be, but it hasn't hit yet.
1: The idea was supposed to be that five G is like it enables internet everywhere, right? Like not just in your phones, but in all kinds of in all kinds of things. I was talking to a a guy who's a transportation planner the other day here in Delaware who's saying that there's a a debate right now. They're looking at whether they're going to use Wi Fi or five G. To power um, like the beacons in traffic signals that will you know that will interact with smart cars in the future or that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, and I, I do think that, that that is more interesting than is your phone gonna be able to download data faster? Because there's a bunch of like technical issues about you know the 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 radio signal getting through walls and and you know how close the cells need to be to each other blah 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 blah, blah that um that i think making makes 5g on your phone actually less interesting than a bunch of other different uses for wireless data that don't involve phones like traffic stuff like internet of things stuff like i don't know even even getting uh, internet to rural areas
1: Dieter Boone, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck weathering the rest of the show in Las Vegas. Thanks so much.
0: One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the coolest things we've seen on the web this week.
1: Again, for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week?
0: So, my tab is in our own magazine. I'm going to be the person in the band wearing their own t shirt. Um, but it is by Henry Grabar. It is entitled Tunnel Vision and it is about uh, Chicago's attempt at uh, rainwater management, uh, urban flooding uh, through the building of a massive tunnel that was planned before climate change kind of turned everything into a massive national crisis um, and uh, explores whether or not uh, the wrong solution was picked. I, I really recommend reading this. Not only is it beautifully written, uh, but it uh, is just a, a, a story of kind of time and, and how long it takes these infrastructure projects to get off the ground and and as priorities change um, and it is to be clear about the world's most ambitious and expensive effort, as Henry says, to to manage urban flooding and water pollution. Um, I'm very interested in it because uh, it is about kind of race, wastewater rivers that uh, flow through cities um, and how uh, you know cities try to kind of deal with the fact that they're running a giant sewage river. Um, yeah, I, I I recommend you guys take a, a moment to to read about the the history of of the deep tunnel. In Chicago and the current kind of conundrum that uh, its makers are in. Uh, and really, you know, wh- what about when when these infrastructure projects, which are supposed to outlive us, um, take so long to build that um, that things change. Right. And the ground moves under your feet in this case.
1: Yeah, I haven't read it, but uh, Henry's really good at these deep dives. I guess in this case, a sort of literal deep dive underneath uh, the city of Chicago.
0: Yeah, he went there. Really great reporting. A trillion thumbs up on this one. All right, Will, your turn. What story do you have open that you think we should see, too? All
1: right. My tab is not new at all, but it has resurfaced in the Twitter feeds of some people I follow in the context of Elon Musk's Hyperloop idea. I thought it would be a good companion to your tab, April. This is from the New Statesman back in 2013. The headline is, London's Victorian Hyperloop, the Forgotten Pneumatic Railway Beneath the Capital's Streets. This is the story of the first and probably the most prominent pneumatic underground railway, which was built 150 years ago in London. It was called the LPDR, London Pneumatic Dispatch Railway, and it would carry parcels and people uh, beneath the capital at speeds, I think up to 30 miles per hour. Don't quote me on that. Um, and it said that uh, a person, a, a young a young man usually would lie down on this capsule with a bunch of mail. And that was the quickest way that they could get it from one part of the city to the other because the city was so clogged with horses and carriages and people and all kinds of crap. So uh, it's just a good reminder that uh, a lot of times the ideas that we talk about that seem new and really out there are in fact old and and still really out there. But London did it, and then New York built a little one that never really took off, but it was a precursor to the New York subway system. So the idea of a pneumatic railway underground is actually not entirely new, I discovered from reading the story. It's a really interesting read about one of those technologies that seemed like the future but turned out not to be. Or maybe it still will be. I don't know.
0: (laughs) There are so many tunnels under cities for so many reasons. It's one of my favorite topics. So I'm actually going to take a look at this. Uh, Where I'm from in Nashville, there are tunnels under the city for for cattle. That's amazing. Yeah, all kinds of tunnels. And uh, if you're rogue or weird or cool enough, um, sometimes you can explore them. (laughs) Um, Okay, I think that does it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod.
1: You can also email us at, ifthen at slate.com Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi.
0: You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at WillOrRemus.
1: Thanks again to our guest, Dieter Bone. You can follow him on Twitter at backlon b-a-c-k-l-o-n and i think i've just missed my one wife's opportunity to ask him why his handle is backlon and what that means
0: oh man don't ask people what their why their handles are stuff <laughs> it's like it's like right, asking people why they have is. like what their tattoos mean or something i don't know you could ask if you want um uh and thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on apple podcast or whatever platform you use to listen we really appreciate your time in doing so
1: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs, and thanks especially to Max for helping put together our last two end-of-year episodes, including the sort of Greatest Hits interview episode, which we got a lot of good feedback on from our listeners.
0: Ditto, ditto, ditto. Thank you so much, Max. And also to Cody Hamilton for engineering here in rainy Berkeley, California.
1: And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios here in sleety Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.